beautiful passage of Scripture, of course, all of Psalm 139 is a beautiful passage of Scripture that talks to us about the intimacy of God's care for us. We'll talk about that as we look at this passage this morning. I just kind of want to front load grace this morning because we're going to be talking about this issue of life and how, how God views life and human life. And obviously we can't talk about that without talking about the topic of abortion. And abortion is a, a challenging topic um, because uh, it's you know statistically certain that some of us sitting here have that in our background. Either we've had an abortion ourselves or we've encouraged someone to do that. And, and so if if, if you find yourself there, I just kind of want to front load as much grace as I can to say that the reason we gather together this morning is not because we are shining examples of moral people that God wants on his team, but we gather together this morning as sinful people who need God's grace. And we gather together with joy in our hearts this morning because God has poured out his grace on us in Christ. And so I trust and I pray that you'll hear much grace this morning as we talk about this. And I I pray that our church will be a church that's marked by such grace and kindness that we can minister to each individual according to their needs. And we all have great needs. Well, so we're looking at this topic of the, the sanctity of life, the preciousness of life. And obviously looking at this passage that touches on that. Recently, I received a, a prayer request from a brother pastor who was asking uh, friends to pray for his daughter who had gone into labor prematurely. Now, the family knew because of testing earlier on in the pregnancy that the child uh, would not survive long due to birth defects. This baby would not be able to survive for long outside of the womb. So I asked his permission to share what he wrote with you, and he gave that permission, and this is what he wrote. I'm writing to ask for prayer. Our grandchild is due in February, the first pregnancy for our daughter and her husband. Their baby is at 31 weeks gestation, but we have known since the first trimester that she will not survive. She has limb, body, wall complex. She has one leg, which is the most minor of her issues. Her vital organs are outside of her body, and therefore she will not be able to sustain life once the umbilical cord is cut. They are prepared as they can be, knowing they will not bring their baby home from the hospital. Instead, they continue to embrace the privilege they have now to provide a safe place for their little girl, to love her for as many days as the Lord has ordained for her. We are walking through this valley with them and are thankful that they know Christ and are knowing him more deeply each day. The time to release her has come earlier than expected. Our daughter is now in labor. If it is God's gracious will, they have been asking him to enable their little princess to survive the birthing process so they might have a few minutes with her. Please pray for this precious little one and for all of us as we walk through this valley together. And then a little later, he wrote a second request. Thank you for your prayers and comforting words. My granddaughter was born this afternoon. The life she lived in the womb these past 31 weeks continued for 45 minutes after birth. Thank you for your prayers for her parents, whose request was answered as they met her, snuggled with her, and placed her into the arms of Jesus. Please continue to pray for them and for our families as we grieve this loss. And obviously, it's a privilege to pray for uh, them, and was so. And as I thought about these prayer requests, I was, just, I was just struck, though, by the view of life that they present. Because so many people in our culture would say that uh, a pregnancy that, that cannot eventuate in a healthy child should be terminated. Or they might say that the mother shouldn't have to put up with the emotional struggle that would be entailed in having to carry a child to full term, knowing that she wouldn't be able to bring that little girl home. But 
But I want you just to consider the perspective of this family. The grandfather knew that God had intentions for his granddaughter, even though her life would be very brief. And the parents, and this this stuck out to me so much, thought it a privilege to be able to provide a safe place for their little girl for as many days as God gave her life. In other words, the perspective of this family is that life is precious. Every life is precious. No matter how small that life is, no matter how briefly that life may endure. So why do they believe that? Well, they believe that, brothers and sisters, because that's what the Bible teaches. Uh, The Bible teaches that our God is a God who values life. The Bible teaches that our God is a God who is intimately involved in the formation of life. We're going to see that it's a work of art from his hand. And, And so they're like God. They value life because they are following God, who is a God of life. So obviously we're taking a break from our study of Ephesians this morning because we want to focus our hearts on this issue of the sanctity of life as a church. This is Sanctity of Life Sunday. Churches across the country are taking time to think about this issue uh, and try to help the congregation think biblically about this issue of life. And we want to do that as well this morning. We want to consider God's perspective on the preciousness of life because we want to inform our hearts and our minds and our consciences by what God's word says and not by lies that we may hear in our culture. I can think of no better passage to study this morning to help us think about God's heart for life than the passage we're studying from Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, which Derek just read for us. Let me give you just some background on this passage if you have it before you. I hope you have it open in your lap before you. If you look at the top of the psalm, you'll see that this is a psalm of David. So this is David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the king of Israel, whom God used not only to lead the people of Israel, but to write many of the inspired psalms that we read. And a psalm, of course, is a song of praise to God that would be sung by the people of Israel and, of course, sung by God's people of all time uh, throughout the church as well. And it's a psalm that's addressed to the choir master, which indicates that David intended for it to be sung corporately by the people of Israel as they gathered together in a formal way before the temple to worship God. The psalm itself contains seven stanzas, so if you're studying it later this week, you'll see that there are seven kind of distinct sections, but those seven stanzas can be broken down really into four sections, and I want to give those to you just as you study through. You'll be helped. In verses 1 to 6, the psalmist praises God for his omniscience. In verses 7 to 12, the psalmist praises God for his omnipresence, for the fact that he's everywhere and indeed close by his people. In verses 13 to 18, the psalmist is praising God for his omnipotence, for his strength, and particularly for his strength that is displayed uh, in the creation of the psalmist himself. So he uses his own creation, birth, formation, conception as a picture of God's power. And then the last section from verses 19 to 24 is where you see the psalmist respond. How should we respond to the greatness of our God? Well, that's what he kind of unveils for us there from verses 19 to 24. More broadly, and of course, if you're familiar with Psalm 139, you know that this is, this is really a psalm of intimacy with God. What makes this psalm so sweet as we read it is it just tells us about God's heart for his people and about how close he is, and about how intimately involved he is in our lives. It's a psalm, as we've said, that praises God for his closeness, for his wisdom, for his power, for the fact that he cares for us. Now, David did not write this psalm as kind of a pro-life apologetic. But, in God's infinite wisdom, he has inspired this psalm to teach us about the preciousness of life 
so that we would stand up for life in a day when life is under attack. Our God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and this is one of the clearest passages in the Bible that teaches us how to think about how important it is for us to be pro-life. And we'll talk about that as well. So listen to what pastor and pro-life advocate Randy Alcorn had to say in his book, Why Pro-Life. And I brought a copy of this up just so you see it. I found this to be very, very helpful as I read through it. If you want to think more carefully about this issue, Why Pro-Life by Randy Alcorn is a very helpful book that gives you a lot of the facts you'll need to think through this well for yourself and to share what you learn with others as well. This is what he says about Psalm 139. He says, Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16, paints a graphic picture of the intimate involvement of God with a preborn person. God created David's inmost being, not at birth, but before birth. David says to his creator, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Each person, regardless of his parentage or handicap, has not been manufactured on a cosmic assembly line, but has been personally knitted together by God. And brothers and sisters, if you believe that, it changes everything. This morning, we're going to consider four truths in Psalm 139. If you had the little sheet that was given to you as you came through the door, you'll see that. The first point is that God is the artist behind every human life. And the second point is that the mother and the child are distinct persons in the eyes of God. And then thirdly, we'll see that every child is an opportunity to worship God. And then fourth, we'll see that God has a plan for every life. So there's a lot of truth in this passage this morning. Let's look at that first truth together. God is the artist behind every new life. Look with me again from verses 13 to 15. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Uh, the you there is God. David is in this psalm speaking to God and talking with God about his intimate involvement in David's life, even before David was born. Throughout the psalm, he's praising God for his um, omniscience, his, uh, the fact that God knows all things, for his omnipresence, for the fact that God is everywhere, and indeed that God is also close at hand. And then the first part of verse 13, David is beginning to praise God for his powerful involvement in David's own uh, creation, conception, formation, development, gestation in his mother's womb. If you read all four verses, verses 13 to 16, you'll see that David will address God as you or, or your no less than seven times. He's focused on God in this passage and God's part in the creation of life. What stood out to me, though, as I read through these verses, is the way David speaks about God's work. The word in the, the verse part of verse 13, that word formed there, it's a Hebrew word that speaks of creation. It's this special thing that God's doing. Uh, knitted there, the second part of verse 13, it really speaks of weaving, weaving something together. Uh, and David speaks about God's wonderful work in verse 14, and then he speaks of himself as being intricately woven together in verses 15. And if you, if you take all of that and put it together, what David is doing is he's painting this picture of God as an artist that is creating a piece of art. Really, he's weaving together this beautiful tapestry from a million beautiful strands. And so there's a lot that we see here. There's a lot that we learn. From this, we learn that God is actively at work in each infant's life from the moment of that child's conception. If you read through the Bible, you'll never see God is out there and uninvolved. God is always 
interested in, involved in his creation, and that's particularly true in this matter of life, where God is said to be intimately involved in the formation of each individual. So each new infant, whether that infant is developmentally normal or in some way handicapped, is God's handiwork, is a piece of art, is valuable. Writing 3,000 years ago, David could not have known uh, how apt his picture of this weaving together, this tapestry, this picture that he paints for us, how apt that is to what really happens. Uh, in our day, technology has given us more insight into what happens inside of the womb. And you can see how an infant develops, and it's really miraculous the way that the uh, baby develops in the mother's womb. At the moment of conception, let me just take you through some of this. At the moment of conception, the newly fertilized egg contains all the genetic information needed to control an individual's growth and development for the rest of his or her lifetime. That, that egg or embryo then becomes this process or begins this process of rapid cellular division and growth. Between five and nine days after conception, the new person burrows into the womb's wall for safety and nourishment. By 14 days of life, the child produces a hormone that suppresses the mother's menstrual period. At 18 days of development, the heart is forming, just 18 days, the heart is forming, the eyes are beginning to develop. By day 21, the heart is pumping. By day 28, the baby's arms and legs are budding. By day 30, the baby has a brain and has already multiplied in size 10,000 times. By 35 days, just a little more than a month, the facial features are taking shape. By 40 days, brain waves are detectable. By 42 days, the skeleton is formed and the brain is controlling the movement of muscles. By day 45, the baby weighs 1 30th of an ounce, but already has all of his or her internal organs, has a little mouth with little lips, an early tongue, and 20 teeth buds. By 56 days or eight weeks, the child is sucking his or her thumb. By 70 days or 10 weeks, the child squints, swallows, or frowns. By 84 days or 12 weeks, that's the end of the first trimester, the child is kicking turning his feet, fanning out his toes, uh, perfecting other fine motor movements. And for the next six months, the child simply grows and develops because the child is fully formed after the first trimester. David saw this development as an act of God, the supreme artist crafting a new life, and it is that. With the advance of science and technology, we can see what an amazing artist God is. The wisdom required to develop that process is infinite. Each and every child is an amazing piece of art. And tragically, it's this amazing piece of art, this precious life that is destroyed by abortion. A second observation, because God is intimately involved in creation, each new baby, each new life is precious to God. That's the picture you see. That's what the David is talking about. Uh, the intimacy of God, the concern of God for this little one that he's forming. Now, even on a human level, artists you know, you just kind of pour themselves into their art. They're expressing a piece of who they are. And if that's true for a human artist, how much more value does God place on each new infant who bears his image? Genesis 1:26, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And of course, he made men and women both in his image. And then Matt Park read again how important that image is to God from Genesis chapter 9. 
Brothers and sisters, here's what we have to understand. Life is precious to God. He values it. Each unborn child bears his image. Tragically, it is that image that is destroyed by abortion. Here's a second truth. The mother and, ch and child are distinct persons in the eyes of God. Look, if you will, at the second part of verse 13. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. It's so important to notice how the psalmist speaks here and how he makes this distinction, this differentiation between himself and his mother there. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Two people. In the eyes of God, here's what you need to see, there are two distinct persons involved in every pregnancy. That's very important. Every pregnancy involves two distinct persons. The mother is a distinct person. The child is a distinct person. Now, it seems silly to state such a perfectly obvious fact until you realize that those who advocate for abortion muddy the waters at precisely that point. They work to depersonalize the baby. And they do it in the words they use. They use words, they use these words intentionally. Words like fetus. Words like products of conception. They argue that a woman should have a right to choose what happens to her body, but they intentionally overlook the fact that there is more than one body involved in every pregnancy. What's the result? The result is that the baby is depersonalized. And so it becomes much easier for culture broadly to uh, think about abortion as an acceptable thing because it doesn't bother the conscience very much to hear about a fetus being aborted. It doesn't you know, cause us to worry as much about a product of conception being eliminated, but it bothers the conscience much more when we're honest with ourselves and we state openly what everyone knows to be the case, that abortion is the killing of a helpless human being. It's what it is. The Bible teaches very clearly that the baby in the womb is a distinct person. In God's view, a distinct person, known by God, indeed knit together by God. And that fact should profoundly impact the way we think about this matter of life. And of course, it's not only the Bible. I mean, the Bible does teach that. God does teach that, of course. It's not only the Bible that teaches that the child and the mother are two distinct persons. Science has given us overwhelming evidence for this as well. So let me give you some of that evidence. You'll find this in the book by Randy Alcorn, the pro-life, why pro-life book. Let me just read some of this to you. I found this helpful. He says, a body part is defined by the common genetic code it shares with the rest of its body. Every cell of the mother's tonsils, appendix, heart, lungs share the same genetic code. The unborn child also has genetic code, but it is distinctly different from his mother's. Every cell of his body is uniquely his, different from every cell of his mother's body. Often, his blood type is also different, and half the time, his gender is different as well. And he says this, the baby, in order not to be rejected as a foreign object by his or her mother's antibodies, must produce a special enzyme beginning on the sixth day or be destroyed. Do you get that? as a outside foreign body. It's got to produce this enzyme. A Chinese zygote, that's a fertilized ovum or egg, implanted in a Swedish woman will always be Chinese, not Swedish, because his identity is based on his genetic code, 
not that of the body in which he or she resides. A child may die and the mother live, or the mother die and the child live, proving they are two separate individuals. In prenatal surgeries, the unborn child still connected to his mother by the umbilical cord is removed, given anesthesia, operated on, and reinserted into the womb. The child is called a patient, is operated on, has his or her own medical records indicating blood type and vital signs. Why? Because we all know that this is an individual person. And in what can only be described as gross hypocrisy, the laws of the United States of America also recognize that a child in the mother's womb is a distinct person worthy of protection. So if a man kills a woman who is pregnant, he is charged with two murders, not one. He's charged with the murder of the mother, and he's charged with the murder of the baby. Friends, you cannot murder an appendix. You cannot murder a kidney, but you can murder a child. And here's the thing. We all know it. We all know it. And yet, for some reason, we struggle to be honest with ourselves. God's word teaches that the child in the mother's womb is a distinct person. Science demonstrates overwhelmingly that the child in the mother's womb is a distinct person. Hypocritical laws which permit abortion do not change what abortion is. Abortion is the murder of a person, a little boy or a little girl. And we should weep that since Roe v. Wade in 1973, more than 60 million little boys and little girls have been legally murdered in our country. That number staggers the imagination. At some point, it becomes so big that we have a hard time even fathoming it. But it rivals what Stalin did in the communist purges in the Soviet Union. It's a number that dwarfs the Holocaust, and it's a number that continues to grow. And as a nation, we have blood on our hands, and we should repent, and we should pray for our nation, and we should ask God to have mercy on us. There's a third truth. Every child is a reason to worship God. Verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So here's the psalmist. He's responding to the marvels of his own creation. And notice how he responds to God. He responds in praise. He's overwhelmed by the reality that his body is both so complex and yet works together so well that there's so many parts and yet they work together so perfectly he was amazed at God's design, and it led him to worship this God who demonstrates his wisdom in the formation of every child. There's a commentator named W.S. Plummer who said, that the very thought of creation stirs David's soul and awakens praise. The fearfulness of our organization results from the infinite skill and perfections of the creator. Neither man nor angel could devise anything at once so nice and so strong, so curious and so useful. And here we have to understand that our bodies really are a marvel, the complexity of it. And I'm not a scientist and I don't pretend to be a scientist, but there's all kinds of examples that you can give of the complexity of the human body. One article on the brain said this, the brain is the most complex organ in the human body. It produces our every thought, action, memory, feeling, experience. 
This jelly-like mass of tissue weighing in around three pounds contains a staggering 100 billion nerve cells, our neurons. That's approaching the number of stars in the Milky Way, right? I mean, I don't know exactly how many there are, but there's a lot, and that's the idea. The complexity of the connectivity between these cells is mind-boggling. Each neuron can make contact with thousands or tens of thousands of others via tiny structures called synapses. Our brains form millions of new connections for every second of our lives. The pattern and strength of the connections is constantly changing, and no two brains are alike. We could go on to talk about the nearly 100,000 miles of blood vessels in the adult human body. We could talk about the complexity of the, of the human immune system or, or the marvel of the ability we have for coordinated motion and all that happens to enable us to move and to move in such precise ways or the wonder of the human eye that enables us to see what is around us. Our God is shown to be uh, brilliantly wise in his creation. And we are a display of that. And God's work, listen, because this is important to understand, God's work in creating human life brings him great praise. Is it any wonder then that Satan works so hard to promote abortion in our culture? Make no mistake about it, Satan is behind the evils that have been uncovered at Planned Parenthood in recent years. Why does Satan hate infants? Well, Satan hates God. And Satan hates anything that brings glory to God. And an infant, through its complexity, through its design, it brings glory to God in whose image he or she is made. And by destroying a baby in the mother's womb, Satan snuffs out that opportunity to praise God. And brothers and sisters, that's why we have the responsibility to stand up for those who cannot stand up for themselves. It's why we have the responsibility to be actively involved pro-life in our day. Every baby is fearfully and wonderfully made. Every infant is an opportunity to praise God for his marvelous power and wisdom. So we should stand up for the unborn in our day. And we should care for mothers and families. And we should try to reach them with the gospel. There's a fourth truth. God has a plan for every life. Look at verse 15 and 16. God has a plan for every life. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So in verse 15, David is using poetic language to talk about his own development in his mother's womb. Uh, he talks about the fact that his frame was not hidden from God. In other words, once again, God was not far away and uninvolved. It's not some sterile scientific process that will happen one way or the other. Indeed, no, God is intimately involved in his creation and indeed intimately involved in this aspect of his creation. In other words, it's personal. And then in verse 16, he speaks of God's presence again. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. But then he goes on to speak of God's plan for life. Look, look at the end of verse 16. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So even before David was born, God had written out, as it were, 
all that would occur in his life. In other words, there was a sovereign plan in play. And God knew. And God was involved. This is the language of sovereignty. Martin Luther said this, The psalmist here proclaims that incomprehensibleness of divine wisdom and goodness, whereby in a wonderful way he himself and all men with all their affairs, all their works, and all their thoughts, both the greatest and the least, were predestined of God from everlasting. This manifold wisdom of God is incomprehensible to flesh and blood. It is the language of sovereignty. It is also the language of purpose. God has a purpose for every life. So we began the sermon thinking about a, a, little, a little girl that lived for 31 weeks in her mother's womb and then died 45 minutes after birth. Her brief life was not meaningless. God had good purposes for that life. One of the purposes, and there were many, was to encourage our church to think about this issue this morning. That was one of the purposes for that brief life. And God has a purpose for the lives of those who have been killed by abortion as well. Our God is wise and just. He judges the wicked and he rescues the helpless. So looking at this passage, we've seen these four truths. God is the artist behind every human life. The mother and child are distinct persons in the eyes of God. Every child is an opportunity to worship God, and God has a plan for every life. Now, thinking about those truths that we've seen, I want us to just think about four brief applications for our church. And this first one is important. We need to realize that being pro-life is a moral issue, not a political one. Let me say it again. We need to realize that being pro-life is a moral issue, not a political one. Now, the issue of abortion has certainly been politicized in our day, but at its heart, abortion is no more political than robbery. I've been laboring to demonstrate as clearly as I can this morning that every abortion is the killing of a person. Another way of saying that is to say that abortion is murder. It's what it is. So there will be politicians who, in this election year, it always feels like it's an election year, but there will be politicians who will make political hay out of being either pro-life or pro-choice, but our purpose, listen, our purpose as a church in standing up for life is not to gain political power over other people. Our purpose is to oppose what is a real evil. Friends, we are, are anti-abortion in the same way that we are anti-robbery and anti-rape and anti-murder. We oppose all of these acts as evil. We have a, a, a moral responsibility to do so. There's a second application. As believers, we must value what God values. So look at verse 13 to 16 again. It demonstrates so clearly that God values human life, even the smallest life. Even the briefest life, he values it. And if he values it, then we must as well and do what we can to protect it. If you want to think through practically what it might look like to, to be involved in, in promoting life in our community, I'd encourage you to speak with Sherry Coker and Sophia Workala, both of whom are involved in the front lines of this very important issue in our day. A third application is believers, we have a responsibility to speak out against evil in our day. We really do. It is to our shame that many churches in America did not speak out against the evils of slavery in the 19th century and that some actively promoted it. 
It is a stain in church history that many believers in Germany did not speak out against the evils of Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. And we must not be guilty of the same sins. If we can look back and see, oh, how clearly they were wrong, then let's not be blind to our own silence and realize we're talking about the exact same kind of evil. There is a Holocaust occurring in America, in our day, it's just more hidden. And we need to not be silent about it. And then here's a fourth application. As a church, we must offer abundant grace and mercy for those who are post-aborted. What I mean is that in this room, in a room this size, it is statistically certain that some of us have abortion in our past. Either we ourselves have had an abortion or we have encouraged someone to have an abortion. For those that are post-abortive, listening to this kind of message can be incredibly difficult. Uh, Satan loves to rub our faces in our failures. Satan loves to shame us. But our responsibility as a church is not to shame those that have this particular sin in their past, but to care for them and to offer them grace and mercy. There's good news for sinners and we all gather together this morning as sinners and there is good news here those who are post-abortive who have abortion as a part of their life and they haven't yet followed jesus we have the best possible news that our god is a good and gracious loving god who has made a way to forgive sinners for their sins and that is jesus and that's the gospel that god created us to love him and serve him that god wanted to have and, and we saw just how intimately he was involved in that creation right and he created us to love him and serve him. But our first parents, they sinned against God in the garden. They rejected God's good law, and they decided it would be better to live for themselves and to do what they wanted to do. And so they did that. They rejected God. They turned away from him. They thought they would just live for themselves. And that's sin. That's what it is. They rebelled against God. And because we were in them and sinned in them, and because we come from them, we've all been born with that same fundamental propensity of turning in on ourselves, rebelling against God, and instead of loving God and loving others, we just kind of shrink down our lives to the size of, of me. And how can I make me happy? And, and how can things be convenient? Or how can I avoid the things that I'm afraid of? And we have all done this. We have all sinned in a hundred different ways. We have lied. We have stolen. We have murdered. Now, we haven't all had an abortion, but we are all still murderers in our hearts. And we have to understand that. The, the anger that we felt towards others, the Lord Jesus says so clearly, is murder. It's the exact same sin. And so we all gather together this morning as people that are desperately needy for God's grace. The Bible says that God is holy, that we're not holy, that there's no way that we can be good enough for this God. There's no way for us to make up for the wrong things that we have done against God and against others. And so if we're left to ourselves, there's no hope. The good news of the gospel is that there's great hope in Jesus. But God is a God who offers mercy to great sinners like us. God the Father sent his son into the world. The eternal son of God became a man, Jesus Christ. And think about how he became a man. Think about how the eternal God entered into this world. How? As a baby. In the, in the womb of a woman. Born of a woman. Living a fully human life. And then he lives this perfect life of love for God and love for others. And all the ways that we have failed to live. And then he offers himself on the cross as a sacrifice, bearing in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died 
and then he rose from the dead. And now we have this glorious message. And it is this, if you will turn from your sins and put your hope in Jesus and in Jesus alone, well then friend, Jesus will be your savior. Which is to say, all of your sins will have been paid for by him on the cross. Which is to say that his perfect life will be given to you as a gift. God will look at you as if you live Jesus' perfect life. All your sin, all your shame, all your guilt, all of that will be washed away. And friends, you have to understand that salvation is a free gift. It is the best possible news. And it's offered to you this morning. If you want to talk with someone about that, what it would look like to have a relationship with God, then we would have no greater joy than to talk with you after the service. You can talk with me, and I could point you towards others who'd love to share with you what God has done in their lives as well. The point is this. There is no sin that God cannot forgive. There is no sin for which God has not already provided a perfect sacrifice in Christ for all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. So run to Jesus. If you felt that in your heart this morning, friend, run to Jesus. That's where life is found. But let me give a word to you this morning, a pastoral word to believers who have abortion in their past. You know, perhaps it was before you became a Christian. Uh, you had an abortion or you encouraged someone to do so. And you hear this message and you're feeling just kind of the weight of that again. Then, friend, let me encourage you to listen to the gospel again. Because in Christ... There is full and free forgiveness for all of our sins. And it has been washed away. Perhaps you committed that sin after becoming a Christian. A moment of fear, weakness. Then, then here, Jesus is faithful and still righteous to forgive us for all of our sins and to cleanse us. And, and his intention for you this morning is not to wallow in your guilt and shame. His intention for you this morning is to receive healing and mercy and life. And he intends to do that through this body as we show the same grace that we have received from God well, as we show that to one another. We must be a church that delights to show grace to one another. So my encouragement would be don't stay in the dark if you feel like you're in the dark. Share that with a, a mature believer that can pray for you and help you. Um, we want you to know, we want you to hear just how much God loves you and just how good of a Savior Jesus is. Well, we've thought a lot this morning about the preciousness of life from Psalm 139. It's a great chapter that will reward a more careful reading and study this week as you spend time with God on your own. No matter how small, no matter how briefly a life may endure, it is precious to God. And we have been reminded that we must value what God values. So may God give us wisdom to know how to do that. And let's pray.